Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church in Somerset, Kentucky. Please make sure to visit us online at phbcsomerset.com. Tonight we're going to talk about the requirements of a deacon. Um, it's been a long time since I've uh, read this poem, but uh, there's a poem that I found a few years ago, and I want to share it with you, about a certain cookie thief. Check this out. It says, A, a woman was waiting in an airport one night with several long hours before her flight. She hunted for a book in the airport shop and bought a bag of cookies and found a place to drop. She was engrossed in her book, but happened to see that the man beside her, as bold as he could be, grabbed a cookie or two from the bag between, which she tried to ignore to avoid a scene. She read much cookies and watched the clock as the gutsy cookie thief diminished her stock. She was getting more irritated as the minutes ticked by, thinking if I wasn't so nice, I'd black his eye. With each cookie she took, he took one too. When only one was left, she wondered what he would do. With a smile on his face and a nervous laugh, he took the last cookie and he broke it in half. He offered her half as he ate the other. She snatched it from him and thought, oh brother, this guy has some nerve and he's also rude. Why, he didn't even show any gratitude. She had never known when she had been so galled and sighed with relief when her flight was called. She gathered her belongings and headed for the gate, refusing to look back at the thieving ingrate. She boarded the plane and sank in her seat, then sought her book, which was almost complete. As she reached in her bag, she gasped with surprise. There was her bag of cookies in front of her eyes. Well, if mine are here, she moaned with despair. That means the others were his, and he tried to share. Too late to apologize, she realized with grief that she was the rude one, the ingrate, the cookie thief been a long time since I've seen that, a cute little poem, but it's got a message for you and I tonight. We're going to look at what the Bible says when it comes to those that are qualified to serve as deacons. And just like the story, before we start judging others, we need to look at ourselves, and I pray that that's the spirit in which we will come to the scriptures tonight. Um, I found a quote a few weeks ago, I've said it a lot here lately, I'll say it again, one guy, Sean Couch, said, if a deacon is going to serve people when they're at their lowest, then he needs to be a man of highest character. And that's why there are qualifications for those that serve as deacons. The office of deacon is a position of trust and a position of service. And that's why there are qualifications to it. Remember what the Bible says in First Timothy. We're going to look in chapter 3 tonight. I'll start with verse 10, uh, where it simply says, They must also be tested first, and if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. So obviously those that serve as deacons, they're uh, vetted, they're uh, evaluated, they're examined based on the Scriptures uh, before they're granted a position of service and trust. Uh, what you're going to see tonight in 1 Timothy 3 when we read about deacons, particularly in verses 8 through 13, is you're going to read a character sketch. Now, what is a character sketch? Well, it's when Scripture paints a picture of the kind of man who has these qualities that are needed to serve as a deacon. Uh, I like what Lynn Anderson uh, says. He says, The ancient Greeks 
frequently use general character sketches arranged in list form to, pro to profile a picture of a good person. An often cited example of this kind of literary device in ancient secular literature is Diogenes, a sketch of the Stoic, uh, the Stoic's concept of a good man. And here's how he says it. He says he must be married, he must be without pride, he must be temperate, and he must combine prudence of mind with excellence of outward behavior. You can see how it's you know, worded and the way it's uh, shaped. Uh, Otosander, another Greek of antiquity, uh, paints the picture of a character sketch of the ideal commander. He says he must be prudent, self-controlled, sober, frugal, enduring and tall, intelligent, without love of money, neither young nor old, if possible, the father of a family, able to speak competently and of good reputation. Uh, the Greeks use character sketches, and the New Testament is written in Greek. And so when Paul is writing to Timothy, he begins to write a character sketch of this is the kind of person you need to look for when it comes to uh, someone serving as a deacon. Now, that is very important, and let me tell you why. As we come to this passage of Scripture in 1 Timothy 3, what I have seen through the years in church is two approaches to this. I call it the checklist mentality and the character sketch mentality. Okay, And whichever approach you take, I can almost predict where you're going to go and where you're going to end up. Okay, Let me explain myself for a moment. A checklist mentality reads verses 8 through 13 and starts writing down, okay, what did he say next? That, okay, and then this. And, and you're just line by line, you're, you're creating a checklist. And then a checklist usually in practice now tends to emphasize some points more than others when they're all important. Many times in Southern Baptist churches, we, we're looking for men that... Uh, that uh, have uh, uh, never been divorced, that don't uh, uh, cuss, chew, or kiss those that do, kind of, you know what I'm saying? And so we, we put a, a lot of weight on, on some of these qualities, and we don't really worry about the others, or we don't try to quantify what they look like. A character sketch uh, mindset and approach allows you to see the portrait, the picture of the kind of person that should serve. And that picture becomes like a, a three-way mirror, and you evaluate them from different angles to see if that's the kind of person that you're dealing with. So let's dive in, and I'll show you what I mean. Um, tonight, uh, let's read First uh, Timothy 3. I'll read the first uh, couple of verses there, 8 and 9. It says, Deacons, likewise, should be worthy of respect, not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Now, the portrait of a deacon reveals that we should examine three things about someone that's being considered for a deacon. And I think this is timely. You might say, well, you're a little late, Pastor. We've already got two new deacons. But it's still timely for us to, to reflect at what we've done and to realize that we're following Scripture, okay, to affirm what we've done. So the portrait of a deacon reveals things we should examine about the man. And here in verses 8 and 9, we're given a few qualities or characteristics about 
the man that is going to be considered to serve as a deacon. First of all, he must be worthy of respect. Now, how would I say this? I've got a saying for each of these, so I'll just, I'll just say it. A deacon should be respected because of the integrity they have rather than the position they hold. Does that make sense? Um, there's nothing worse than, you know, you know, in politics, we're all divided. We've all got opinions. We try to honor the office even when we don't agree with the person in office. Well, let's flip that for a moment. When it comes to deacons, yes, we should respect the office of deacon, but we certainly should respect the, the, the people that we're considering for deacon. Uh, if we have no reason to respect the man, then we've got the wrong kind of man in there. So worthy of respect. They should be respected because of the integrity they have, not just the position they hold. Um, the next thing it says about the man, it says not hypocritical. Uh, some other translations say sincere. Uh, that would be the positive way to say it, but not hypocritical. Uh, in a practical way, I would say that a deacon should be someone you can talk to because you trust them. Uh, I don't know about you, but I don't know of anybody that wants to trust a hypocrite, right? And so uh, you don't, you, you want to be able to say if someone's sincere and they're not hypocritical, then you're going to feel comfortable talking to them because you trust them. The, the next thing it says is not drinking a lot of wine. And I had a, um, had a deacon in a previous church tell me one time, Charles, he says, uh, we've got it easier than you, preacher. And I said, what's that? He says, well, an overseer in verse 3 is not an excessive drinker, but then it says that we uh, should uh, not drink a lot of wine, just didn't say a little, you know. But uh, anyway, with all that aside, uh, here's what I would say, and I'm going to say this the best way I know how. A deacon cannot have a drinking problem. He should be known as a man who carries a Bible and not a bottle. Okay, there you go. Uh, the next thing, not greedy for money. Um, again, that comes up, I think, in both the uh, overseer, pastor, elder, and the deacon. Um, I can see where it's a concern. A deacon cannot have a problem with money because if he can't be trusted with responsibility over others, uh, or let me say it again, a deacon cannot have a problem with money. Why? Because he can't, he, if, he, if he cannot be trusted with responsibility over others, it's because he's taking advantage of them. I don't think I worded that right. Sorry about that. All right, so not greedy for money. The next thing it says in verse 9, that he holds the mystery of the faith, with a clear conscience. In other words, a deacon demonstrates faithfulness to God's word by responding to his word with obedience. That's holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. You're doing what you know is right. And then in verse 10, we mentioned that a moment ago, these deacons also must first be tested, and if they prove blameless, then they can serve as deacons. So the first thing you look at when it comes to the portrait of a deacon is you look at the man. The next thing you look at is his wife. Look, if you will, in verse 11 now. Wives, too, must be worthy of respect, not slanderers, self-controlled, faithful in everything. 
Let's look at those four qualities for a moment. Worthy respect. Well, I'll say the same thing here that I said just a moment ago. A deacon's wife should be respected because of the, the integrity she holds rather than her husband's position. Uh, she must not be a slanderer. Again, a deacon's wife should be someone you can talk to and trust. I know in a previous church I served in years ago, we were looking at um, candidates for deacons. And we had, since this is live stream, I've got to be generic for a moment, okay? So, but uh, thanks, World Wide Web. But uh, anyway, we were considering this man, and he had quite a past, but that was literally B.C., before he... But Christ came into his life. And then Christ saved him at like the age of 50, and he was completely a changed man. And some people were hung up on the things he did before he got saved, but that was before he got saved. And once he got saved, man, he got saved. And we were kind of uncertain. I wouldn't say divided. I would just say we were kind of uncertain. What do we do with that? What do we do? We prayed about it. We looked at scriptures. We had conversations. And finally, someone said, well, you know, right here it says that we should not only look at the man, we should look at his wife. And when we did that, we started kind of asking around. And we noticed that different people had an issue with this guy's wife because if they told her something, she told everybody else. And in good faith, we came together and said, we're not going to consider him anymore. And so, you know, again, a deacon's wife must not be a slanderer. Uh, she should be someone you can talk to and trust. Uh, the next one says self-controlled. Uh, a deacon's wife should not be unstable. She should have sound judgment and self-control. And then the fourth quality, faithful in everything. I interpret that to mean this. A deacon's wife should be known by everyone as a reliable, dependable person. Okay, If you're faithful in everything, that means people can rely on you. That means you're a dependable person. If I ask you to do something and you say you're going to do it, then I know you're going to take care of it because you're faithful in everything you do. Then... We have verse 12, 1 Timothy 3, verse 12. It says, Deacons are to be husbands of one wife, managing their children and their own households competently. So here we are. We have this portrait of a deacon. We look at the man. We look at his wife. And now we look at his family. There's two particular things it says here, the husband and one wife, and then managing children in the household well. As you can imagine, I'm going to have to dig here for a little bit. So let's look at that. Husband of one wife. The Greek New Testament, which is what the New Testament was written in, it was written in Greek. There's only three words for this phrase or statement. It's meos, which is one, gnuskos, which is woman, and then Andres, which is man. It's a one-woman man. So we can translate it that way, a one-woman man. Now, there are some interpretations that have been advanced through the years, and I'm going to deal with three of them, I guess, in particular. One interpretation says that deacons must be married. Um, let's look at that for a minute. Does this mean that a deacon 
must be married, that he might be a fine fella, regardless of his age, whether he's young or older. But if he's never been married, if he's single, even if he's lived an upstanding life, some would say, well, he can't be a deacon because, well, obviously he, he must be married. But if Paul requires deacons to be married, he's contradicting what he told the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says those who are single have an advantage in serving the Lord. If you read 1 Corinthians 7, he'll basically say that if a, if a man is married, his interests are divided. They're divided between pleasing the Lord and pleasing his, his wife, his mate. But if someone is single, their interests aren't divided because they have an undivided attention on how they can please the Lord and no one else. Uh, Paul didn't write, deacons must be men who have wives. He says that they uh, must be one women men. Uh, the same principle is involved in the deacons' children. Uh, again, you read, it says managing their children and their household competently. Uh, some people that are what I call hyper-literal would say, well, if you don't have, you know, if you only have one child, I guess you're not qualified because it says children, so you need to have more than one. Uh, do you see how you can force things that way? Uh, Paul is not requiring a deacon to father two or more kids. How else could Paul say his words? He wouldn't use child because some people might think, well, you're only allowed to have one. So we don't need to press the words beyond what they uh, mean. The second interpretation that some people have advanced is that deacons are prohibited from polygamy. And when I first looked at this years ago, I was like, well, there it is, you know. Uh, some believe this means married to one wife, and they conclude that Paul's intent was to prohibit polygamy, which is having two or more wives at the same time. Now, for years, that's what I believed as a new Christian, and then the more I started studying Scripture, what bothered me was David, who was anointed as a king of Israel, whom God used to write Scripture in the Psalms, who God said he is a man after my own heart. You know, if you had men like David in your church that, you know, uh, worship God, were faithful to God, and God said, they're my friend, they're, they're a person after my own heart, you'd be like, man, I'd love to have men in my church like that. They would be deacon material. But David had more than one wife. He wouldn't qualify to be, you know, a deacon in a Southern Baptist church. So that really, you know, that kind of made me go, wow, let me, let me think about all this. So anyway, at first this seems like a good explanation. It's a, it's a prohibition against polygamy. But when you look at the rest of 1 Timothy in context, you've got 1 Timothy 5 to deal with. Uh, you, you may have heard me say this before, but I'll, I'll say it again here. Remember, there's three character sketches in 1 Timothy, one for elder overseer pastors in chapter 3, one for deacons in chapter 3, and one for widows who are truly in need that the church supports and ministers to in 1 Timothy 5. Now, in 1 Timothy 5, a widow has to meet certain criteria, and the checklist is there in, in 1 Timothy 5, verse 9. It talks about her age. And the very next thing it says has been the wife of one husband. And then it goes into other qualities. Now, if you read the rest of 1 Timothy 5, you'll know that, that 
that Paul tells Timothy, if there are younger widows in your church, counsel them to remarry, to have families, settle down, and live a fruitful, productive life. So if you look at what Paul is telling Timothy to teach the church, let's take that for a minute and let's play it out. Okay, let's, let's play it out. So you have a young woman in the congregation and her husband dies and she's told you need to remarry, have kids, enjoy your family, live a fruitful, productive life. She does. 30 years go by or so and now all of a sudden she's past 60 and um, her husband dies and let's say for whatever reason she maybe didn't have kids or they're too far away to care for or whatever, but if you know where I'm going, think about it for a moment. A younger widow was counseled to remarry. When she gets older and she becomes a widow again, is she the wife of one man or two? And is the church going to support her or not? And, uh, you know, we're not used to polygamy in our culture, even though it's prevalent in the Old Testament. But when you look at palandry, which is women who have more than one husband at a time, I studied that in sociology once. It is a very, very rare occurrence. And so anyway, in 1 Timothy uh, 5, that forces me to be honest about all the possibilities here. And um, that makes me go, well, I think there's a better interpretation here. So then you have a third interpretation that some advance, and that is that deacons must be married only once. Now, some believe that a deacon cannot remarry for any reason. I know in previous communities where I've served, um, I knew of a wonderful man who was a retired uh, school principal, I believe, and uh, he had he'd never been a deacon. He had thought about it, and then his wife died, and uh, he went several years without dating, and then he started dating, and then they uh, uh, approached him about being a deacon, and, oh, no, I can't do that. And uh, he, he pointed to this as his reason, but I don't necessarily agree with that. For example, the Bible teaches that if a man's uh, wife dies, um, he's free. In other words, here it is. It's Romans 7.2. Romans 7.2 says that a married woman is legally bound to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law regarding her husband. When, when a couple get married and they make a vow to be together till death do us part, then obviously marriage is binding until death, right? And once one of the spouses dies, the other one is no longer bound by the law of marriage. Does that make sense? In Romans 7, Paul uses that illustratively to say that we have, you know, we're, we're set free now from sin. Uh, we have Christ in our lives, and, you know, that's an awesome, awesome truth in and of itself. So, um, let's look at this for a moment. Um, in a nutshell, I believe that Paul is talking about moral character and not marital status. And so, when he says a one-woman man, he's not asking about your marital status. He's saying, are you, you know, faithfully loving your wife? But anyway, let's, let's digress here for just a moment. 
I think the reason why so many times people get a little nervous when pastors talk about marriage and divorce is it is messy, okay? Uh, divorce wasn't God's plan. He permitted it in Moses' day, but he said, I'm allowing it because of the hardness of your hearts. Is divorce sin? Yes. Is it the unforgivable sin? No. Um, so what do we say here? Well, again, I want to model um, good teaching here. I want to stick to 1 Timothy. I want to remind you of all the gems of truth that are in this letter. So let's back up for a minute and let's get some context to what Paul is telling Timothy about. So go to 1 Timothy 1 for a moment. In 1 Timothy 1 verse 3, Paul at the very beginning of his letter says to Timothy, as I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach false doctrine. Okay? Teaching is very important, right? When we teach, we need to teach what is right, what is true. We need to teach God's Word. We don't need to um, stretch it beyond what it means. We don't need to dilute it and water it down. We don't need to add to it or take away anything from it. We need to teach it as it is. Now, jump down a few verses there in 1 Timothy 1 to verse 8. He's saying, uh, you know, certain people shouldn't be allowed to teach false doctrine. And then he elaborates in verse 8. He says, we know that the law is good, provided one uses it legitimately. We know that the law is not meant for a righteous person, but for the lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinful, for the unholy and irreverent, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral and homosexuals, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound teaching that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which was entrusted to me. Now, he said a mouthful there, but the principle in verse 8 is the law is good as long as you use it legitimately. What does that mean? Well, the law is good because it's God's law, but you have to use it for the purpose in which it was intended, okay? When I go into my garage and get out a few tools, um, if I want to saw something, I don't grab a hammer. That's not the purpose of the hammer. I have to find a saw. I have to find something with a blade, whether it's a a skill saw that I can plug in and just pull the trigger, or whether it's a hand saw that's got a jagged edge and i got to put some, some, some elbow effort behind it, okay? But you've got to use the tool for its intended purpose. Now, we know that Paul told the church in Galatia that the law is a schoolmaster that leads you to Christ. What did he mean by that? Well, the law teaches us that we are sinners, therefore we realize we need a Savior, and that's why we come to Christ. When you go to a doctor, he's going, if there's something wrong, he's going to tell you the bad news first. And once he tells you the bad news, and you go, oh my goodness, I have this disease. Oh no, I've got to do something. Then he gives you the good news. There's a cure, or there's treatment, and here's what you need to do. The law is good. The law is for sinners, not saints. 
the law shows sinners why they're sinners and why God will judge them on judgment day and why it's reasonable for Him to do so because they've broken His law. But the law can't save you, okay? The law can't save you. It just shows you why you need to be saved. Okay, now let's jump to chapter 4. In 1 Timothy 4, now so far at this point, we know that Paul tells Timothy, commands certain people not to teach false doctrine. Make sure they're using the law legitimately for the right purpose, okay? In other words, use the law to show sinners why they're sinners, but don't use the law to club the, the saints, okay? That's not what it's for. Then, in chapter 4, verse 1, now the Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit, explicitly says that in later times some will depart from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are seared. They forbid marriage. We'll come back to that in a minute. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from foods that God created to be received with gratitude by those who believe and know the truth. So, just by what I've read in chapter 1 and chapter 4, we can surmise that there were people in Ephesus, which is where Timothy was, that Paul said, Timothy, command certain people not to teach false doctrine. They are taking the law of God, and instead of using it to point sinners to a Savior, they're using the law illegitimately. They're using it to be legalistic, towards God's people who are already saved. That's not the purpose of the law. I love what Wearsby said. Warren Wearsby said that the natural man knows no law because he's going to break it. He's going to do whatever he wants to do, the natural man, the unsaved man. But the spiritual man, the, the new man in Christ Jesus, he needs no law. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has written it on his heart. Okay? And so these false teachers are using the law for the wrong purpose and then they talk about special foods, some are kosher and some are not, and they forbid people to marry for whatever reason. We don't know the details. Now you go back and you look at 1 Timothy 3. And in that context, he's looking at leaders in the church as overseers, and then, of course, servants in the church as deacons. And he says, a one-woman man. And I do believe he's talking about moral character and not marital status, because if he's talking about marital status, we've got multiple questions. It doesn't mean they have to be married. Does it mean... Married only once, well, what if they've been divorced? What if their mate left them? What if their mate died? I mean, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? You're writing something that could have all kinds of questions and no clear answer. But if it's about moral character, a one-woman man, then we get it. So here is what I would say. Some apply this phrase to uh, remarriage after divorce and not the death of a spouse. And if that's true, then there's one thing we need to keep in mind. There are two biblical grounds for divorce. Now, here's the thing. I like to give the deacons a heads up, and we've talked about this a long time ago, so they know 
where I stand on this thing, okay? But, but here's the thing. It's hard to be dogmatic about something when Scripture has a couple exceptions to the rule. I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman for life. That is the, the gold standard in Scripture, period. We live in a fallen world. Sometimes marriages don't work out. Is divorce wrong? Yes. Is it the unforgivable sin? No. Are there biblical grounds for divorce? Yes, but there's two, and here they are. According to Jesus, he said one is adultery. That's in the, in the Gospel of Matthew. Um, if, um, if someone cheats on their mate, then the, the innocent party is, is no longer bound. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, according to Paul, the second grounds for divorce is abandonment. If you have a couple that's together, and one just leaves the other, just says, I'm gone, I'm out of here, bye, and they leave, then you are, as a believer, you're no longer bound. So my, my conviction is this, we should seek to know the story within the book before we make a rash judgment because of its cover. Is divorce a sin? Of course. God hates divorce because it was never in His plan. It distorts the picture of marriage between Christ and the church. Over and over again, the Bible affirms monogamy. So my conviction on this issue, thank you for your patience, is a deacon must be faithful to his wife. That is the meaning of the phrase, husband and one wife. Why? Because the issue is moral character, not marital status. The deacon should be faithful to his wife. Now, I'll be honest, sometimes that makes people nervous. Well, I feel like you're on shaky ground there, preacher, or I think you're just a you know, trying to keep up with modern times, or I think you're leaving the back door open to this, that, and the other. Remember what I said. Uh, many times when I have conversations with folks like that, I have learned through the years that they are coming to this passage with a checklist mentality. You've got to come to this passage with a character sketch mentality. It paints the picture of the portrait of the kind of person that should serve. And this picture, this portrait, becomes a three-way mirror. Uh, ladies, you know what I'm talking about. You go to the mall, you go to a, a clothing store, and you want to try on. They, they have a lot more of these, uh, you know, changing booths that you can go to now. But I remember years ago when I was a kid, you could change, and then you would come out to a three-way mirror there by the changing area, and the salesperson would be talking to you. And boy, they would really, they would butter you up, wouldn't they? Oh, yeah, I like that. Yeah, give it another twirl there. Oh, I think that looks good. Yeah, yeah. And you know, you're dressed up. You've just come out of the changing area. You're standing there in front of that three-way mirror. And you, you look at it this way. Okay, yeah, not bad. And you, you kind of you get into it, right? And you look over here at that side view and that side view. My point is this. When you look at Scripture and say, everything matters. We're not going to say this is more important than that. Everything paints a picture here. All of this, all of these qualities paint a picture. Every one of them matters. So let's look at them from this angle. Now let's look at them from that angle. Let's look at them from that angle. And they might look good from this angle, but once you come over here, ooh, I didn't see that. It's like the story or the illustration I told a few minutes ago of the man who had lived his own kind of life for 50 years. And then he got saved. 
And then said, everybody said, man, he, he's a servant. If there ever was one, he needs to be a deacon. And we weren't sure what to do with the life he'd lived before Christ, but we ultimately believed in our hearts, well, that shouldn't matter because that was before he was even saved. We're looking at it from salvation forward. But then when we looked at his wife, we found our answer. And see, that's the thing. When you look at Scripture like that, the three-way mirror, it never lies. So you look at the man, you look at his wife, you look at his family. We've talked about husband and one wife. Let's look at the other part very quickly. Manage their children and household competently or well. In other words, a deacon should be a responsible father to his children. And if a deacon cannot serve his family well, then he doesn't need to serve the church. Doesn't mean he have, it doesn't mean he has a perfect family. We should all know better than that. There's no perfect people. There's certainly no perfect family. But if he doesn't serve his family well, he'll never serve the church well. So the home is a good indicator of what he'll do in the church. So let's review very quickly, and then I've got one more curveball for you. When examining a deacon candidate, remember to look at these three things. The man, is he worthy of respect? Not hypocritical, not drinking a lot of wine, not greedy for money, holding the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Look at his wife. Is she worthy of respect, not a slanderer, self-control, and faithful in everything? Look at his family. Is he a one-woman kind of man, and does he manage his children and household well? Now, with that said, we've got one last thing. Hmm. I'm going to bring this up. I was sharing this at the table. In my years at seminary, having conversations in the classroom, I have realized as a pastor and as a leader that there's certain things that uh, we'll have to address sooner or later in church ministry, and one of them is whether or not a, um, a woman can be a deacon, and I want to address that before we wrap up this passage, because some will read this passage in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and where it says... Um, in verse 11, wives too must be worthy of respect, uh, not slanderous, self-controlled, and faithful in everything. There are some, and they even have their Bibles to say deaconess. And they'll go, hey, Brother Corey, what, what, about, what about a deaconess or what about women deacons? Well, um, let's deal with that for five or ten minutes and then I'll be done. I want you to know that the argument for that position is based on two texts in the Bible. Two and I want to look at each one of those two. One of them is 1 Timothy 3, verse 11, right here. And the other one is Romans 16, about Phoebe, and I'll get to her in just a moment. But there in verse 11, I just read it. Uh, some will look at that, and even those that are fairly educated will say, ah, there's an absence of the possessive pronoun. And they use that to sound intellectual and informed and say, well, there's an absence of a possessive pronoun there, so we don't believe they're talking about their wives. They're just saying women, and it shifts from verses 8, 9, and 10 to 11, and so it's got to be women deacons. Well, I like what Alexander Strzok said about that. He says the context surrounding um, verses 8 through 13 focuses on men deacons or male deacons. To find... The Greek word for woman mentioned in the middle of this section 
on male deacons would naturally cause one to think of the wives of these male deacons. If no female deacons or women help deacons in the church in Ephesus, which is where Paul was, I mean, Timothy was when he wrote this letter, uh, when, when Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, excuse me, the original readers would have known that it could only mean wives. Thus, the pronoun there would certainly be helpful to us years later reading this, but it's not necessary for the sentence grammatically, nor was it necessary to Paul's original readers. And furthermore, the absence of the pronoun there next to the word genuskus or women can be explained stylistically. Verse 11 follows the same parallel structure as verse 8. In verse 8, deacons likewise should be worthy of respect. Verse 11, wives too must be worthy of respect. If you look at the Greek text, you would see if you were uh, or hear it if you were reading out loud that verse 11 almost exactly parallels verse 8. Three words in the Greek. The only difference is diakunos for deacons, genuskos for wives. The rest of verse 11 virtually parallels verses 8 and 9. And in the end, and he's right, in the end, it's easier to explain the omission of the pronoun there, which is what they're building their case on, than to explain why Paul uses the term women rather than deaconess or women helpers. So if you want to play that game, they have more to prove than a conservative view of the Scripture would have to prove. Then you've got the flow of thought. The context of this passage demonstrates a flow of, a a flow of thought, and I've demonstrated it as we looked at it. You look at the man. You look at the wife. You look at the family. You see how it flows together. George Knight, a very con uh, conservative scholar, said this, if it is wives that are in view, then the verse fits here as another qualification needed for one who would be a deacon and, and, and one who would conduct his ministry with his wife's assistance. Thus, the wife's qualifications are part and parcel of his qualification for the office of deacon or diakonos. And after giving the qualification for the deacon's wife, Paul then goes on to uh, the family. So, some of you, if you've thought about this for any length of time, you may say something else, and this has come up before. Some may say, well, why is it saying something for the deacon's wives? And over here in the first eight verses of, uh, or in the first seven verses of chapter three, where it talks about overseer, elder, pastor, why don't it talk about the pastor's wife or the elder's wife? Why is it picking on the deacon's wife and, and not the elder's wife? Well, that's a good question. Um, keep in mind, it wasn't to like the 1500s or so that we took the Bible and we put it into chapters and verses because it's easier to refer to. If I say, you know, read 1 Timothy 3 verse 1, it's, you know, it's a way for you to go, oh, this is where he's at. Whereas if we didn't have the chapters and verses, I'd be like, hang on a minute. What'd you say? And I'd finally catch up with you. Well, keep in mind, this was a letter. And so instead of artificially thinking that chapter 2 is right here and it's completely different from chapter 3, this is a letter. And so in chapter 2, verse 11 through 15, literally the last breath of words that he says before talking about overseers and deacons, here's what he says. He says, 
there in verse um, 11. A woman is to learn quietly with full submission. I do not allow a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. Instead, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. But she'll be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with good sense. Now, as I read that, it's saying that a woman is not to teach or have authority over a man. What is an elder overseer called to do? It's a leadership position of authority where you teach. And so a elder wife, a pastor's wife, is not going to help her pastor uh, preach or teach. And so that's why you don't have any um, expectations biblically on the overseer pastor's wife in chapter 3. But on the deacon's wife, deacons, they're not required to teach. And since they're not required to teach and they're ministering to people who are in need, then the expectation is the deacon's wife will come alongside and help him. And that doesn't violate the principle that God lays down. You know, I know today in today's culture, some people go, well, I just can't believe you, preacher, that you will believe that. Well, listen, it's not about what I believe, it's what God's Word says. It's what about, it's, it's, it's about what the, the Bible teaches. And a lot of times they love to play the, the culture card. Well, you know, that was just the culture in, in, they, in that day and time in a place called Ephesus about 2,000 years ago. I don't buy that argument, and I'm going to tell you something, it don't hold any water. I'm going to tell you why. Because when Paul lays down this, this idea that a woman shouldn't teach or have authority over a man, um, he points to something. And it's not an opinion. It's not a Supreme Court case. It's not a cultural trend, okay? It's a historical event. Can't change history. I know there are people today trying to rewrite history, but you can't change history. And Paul points to not one, but two historical events. He says in verse 13, creation. In creation, Adam was formed first, then Eve. I don't know why God made Adam first and Eve second. And listen, it's not about male chauvinism. It's not about modern feminism, okay? Both of those are extreme reactions, okay? Uh, In a fallen world, I might add. It says, in creation, Adam was formed first, then Eve. So that's one. And then the second historical event is the fall. It says, and in verse 14, Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and transgressed. Now, some of of you, that might bother you for a minute, but hang on, okay? Go back and read the book in Genesis again. Um, The devil's crafty. He's sly, okay? I think from the beginning he knew, ladies, that y'all like shopping. And he said, hey, I've got a deal, okay? Don't it look good? Yeah. You know, it'll make you wise, you know? And you can be like God. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, you should try it. And, And what happens? The Bible says that she was deceived, and she ate it. And then what does the Bible say? 
and her husband who was with her, he ate it. Adam was there the whole time when the whole thing went down, and he didn't do a thing, okay? He didn't do a thing. And based on that text, Paul is saying, look, the woman was deceived. She talked to the devil too long, and she kind of bought his argument, and she said, ah, let's try it. And she was deceived. But Adam wasn't. He was given the command directly from God, do not eat of that one tree, and God's commands don't change. And he sat there and watched the whole thing go down, and he did it anyway. But he wasn't deceived. Okay? which means the guilt of man is greater than woman. Just saying. So, with that said, that is the lead-in to the qualifications for pastors and deacons. Now, John Hammett says something that I want to quote very quickly. He He wrote a book, Biblical Foundations for Baptist Churches, and here's what he said. He says, an elder is charged with the responsibilities for teaching and leading, responsibilities that Paul does not give to women, but a deacon is charged with responsibilities that his wife may and should share. And I agree. Okay, now, one more thing. Trying to make this quick. I said that there were two texts for those that believe in women deacons. They look at 1 Timothy 3.11, The other one is Romans 16. In Romans 16, verse 1 and 2, as Paul is signing off his letter to the Roman church, in the very first verse, he says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, who is a servant of the church in Caesarea. So you should welcome her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and assist her in whatever matter she may require your help for indeed she's been a benefactor of many and of me also. Depending on your English translation, in verse 1, a servant of the church, some would say deaconess. And then if it says deaconess, some are going to go, is that a woman deacon? And all of a sudden, here comes the issue. Well, did you know, and I've mentioned this in the previous lesson, and I'll bring it up now as a reminder. Did you know that every explicit mention of the term deacon in the New Testament always occurs with the term overseer? In Philippians 1.1, Paul wrote to the church in Philippi. He says, um, well, let me get there and I'll read it. In Philippians 1.1, listen to what he says. He says, uh, Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, okay? Overseers and deacons. And the only other time you'll see the the word deacon is in 1 Timothy 3, where you have the qualifications for overseers and the qualifications for deacon. So the only time you see the word deacon in the New Testament is when it's used right beside overseer. And in Romans 16, you don't see that. Okay? I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to build a whole bunch of theology on one verse. And quite frankly, I think that's dangerous. That's shaky ground. 
Um, to quote Alexander Strzok, the example of Phoebe illustrates the preeminent service that Christian women provided for the Lord's work during New Testament times. Because women are not to be officers in the church, that doesn't mean they can't significantly serve the church or their Lord, because they can. Every Christian woman should wholeheartedly serve the body of Christ. Let us not forget that humble, self-sacrificing service to others, not position or status, is the supreme mark of greatness in God's eyes. And then John Hammett says, Romans 16 is simply indicating the recognition of Phoebe's ministry as a servant in her church. She's like millions who have followed her, who have served because they were gifted and empowered by the Spirit and saw areas where their service was needed, regardless of whether they have a formal office and title or not, such godly servants quietly and simply serve. They deserve the same commendation as Phoebe. Personally, I have a high view of women. If it wasn't for women in our local churches, we'd be in a hot mess. We really would. And every man in here would say, yep, you're right. But I don't believe scripturally in a woman pastor, nor do I believe in a woman deacon. Okay? The, the, the argument today is distorted. They want to talk about women in ministry. It's not about women in ministry. It's about women in, in leadership, particularly the office of pastor or elder and deacon. Let me wind this up. I know I, I, know I gave you all a lot to think about tonight. I want to go back to a core truth. Jesus said in Matthew 23, verse 11, the greatest among you will be your servant. And that's where I want us to end. Because here's the thing, you and I should serve God and we should serve the church, whether we have a title or not. Does that make sense? We should serve because of what God has done in our lives. We should serve because we love God and we love people. There's so much to do in the kingdom. There's so much to do in the body of Christ. Uh, I'm not going to dare stop anybody from serving. We should all serve. And everyone can be a servant for the Lord. So my, my challenge to you would be this. You don't have to have a title to serve. Just step up and serve. Make a difference in somebody's life because of Jesus. And when you do that, you're experiencing God work in you and through you. And to me, that's one of the best feelings in the world. Well, I'll leave it there. I know we talked a lot. I hope you will understand that when it comes to deacons, I believe we've based more of our understanding on deacons on history and books than we have the Bible. In all fairness, there's not a lot about it. And so what is said about it, we have to look at it uh, thoroughly. We have to squeeze everything we can out of it like a sponge and say, Lord, I believe your word is sufficient. I believe you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. You may not answer all of our questions, but I believe you've given us everything we need to know. And so we're going to go to the book and we're going to do what the book says and we're going to stick to the Bible. Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight. Thank you for your word. Lord, I pray that we would all be inspired to serve tonight. Lord, we don't need a title. Lord, if we do have a title, we, we're more accountable to you. Uh, we come under your authority. And 
will be judged more strictly like teachers and leaders. But Father, we can serve whether we have a title or not. Lord, we can serve right now where we are and make a difference for Jesus' sake. And Father, I pray that we would. Lord, I pray that instead of serving ourselves, Lord, when we look at the cross and what you did for us, we, out of gratitude, would seek to serve you and others by demonstrating the love of God, not just in word, but in deed. And Father, when it comes to the office of leadership in the church and the office of service and trust in the church, Lord, may we follow your scriptures. May we look at the character sketches and the pictures that you have put in your word. And may we carefully, biblically, and prayerfully select the right men to serve as leaders or servants in the church and to do what you have called them to do while the entire body of Christ builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Lord, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon podcast from Pleasant Hill Baptist Church. To learn more about the church, find out meeting times, or learn how to contact the pastor, please visit phbcsummerset.com.